Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. Today, if if someone wants to like implement a quantum algorithm today and run it on like one of the existing uh, hardware, what what options do they have to write code, right? I want you to think about quantum now, like especially the software aspect of it now, as kind of similar to the uh, early uh, stages of classical computers. But instead of having to write your code in zeros and one, which is assembly, you're actually writing it using like a programming language, but you're describing a very low level of the of the circuit. Like you're describing gates and registers, which is basically what people were doing back in the early stages of the classical computers. But you know, with zeros and ones, right? Now we don't. We don't even need to think about transistors and registers when we write software for a classical computer. And hopefully, at some point in the future, quantum software will reach that level as well, which is a level where we don't have to worry about like the hardware aspect of quantum, and we can just focus on the on like just implementing algorithm. We don't have to think about registers. Women Who Code Talks Tech is where we deep dive into highly technical subjects with talks by leaders in the industry. This week, we have Getting Into Quantum Computing Today with Kai University Quantum Computing PhD candidate, Sarah A. Mitwali. For the written transcript of this talk and visual aids, visit womenwhocode.com backslash blog. Enjoy. What are the basics of quantum computers, right? Like what makes them different? And for that, we're gonna talk about the three pillars of quantum computing, which are the three core concepts that quantum computers work on. First of all, we're gonna talk about qubits or quantum bits. Qubits are the equivalent of bits, which is short for binary digits, which are the zeros and ones that exist in like today's today's classical computers, right? Everything today in the normal computers is either zero or one. In quantum, it's called qubit, which is just at Q before the bits, okay? So qubits, the difference between bits and qubits is actually very interesting, or the way I like to describe it is this. In classical computers, bits are more of a, a concept rather than an existing thing in nature, right? The zero means there is no current in the circuit, or if you think about it as switches, the switch is open, so there is no current passing in the circuit. If it's one, that means the switch is closed and there is a current passing in the circuit. So they're more of a concept rather than something that exists in nature, right? Or that is existing in our world. However, qubits do exist because as we're gonna talk like in a bit about the construction of qubits or what type of qubits there are, qubits are actually like something, I want to say physical, but like, you know, like there is an electron and it's spinning, so that's a qubit. So the, the electron, like for example, the spin of electron represent a qubit or the electron itself or a photon, a light photon can be a, a qubit. So qubits kind of do exist in a sense that they are a representation of something that does exist in nature rather than a concept. And again, because quantum is like, like we're dealing with this electrons and photons, they can be, okay, at two states in the same time, which I guess where most of the confusion about quantum happens when people say, hey, it can be both zero and one in the same time. 
This is only partially true. They can be both in the same time during computations, but when we measure them or when we want to know the result in the end, they can either be zero or one. And that leads us to superposition, right? Which is when something can be both zero and one in the same time, right? So we just said like that partially or during computations, qubits can be can have both values of zeros and ones in the same time, which is called superposition, right? And there is like the famous thought experiment, which is Schrodinger's cat, right? Which is like there is a cat in the box and there is poison with the cat. And until we open the box, we can never know for sure if the cat broke the poison and died or if it's still alive and the poison did not leak, right? So here it's kind of like probabilistic, right? Like it's either she, the cat is 50% dead or 50% alive. But once we open the box and see exactly the state of the cat, then we'll know that whether the cat is actually alive or dead. It cannot be both alive and dead in the same time once we open the box. But before we open the box, you know, we can just guess, right? And this guessing is what superposition is pretty much. Another way to, to explain how like everything in, the, in life is quantum, especially the superposition, is thinking about what you wanna eat for dinner. And I may, like, if I may say like that thinking what you wanna eat for food is one of the most complicated things to think about. <laughs> what should I eat today? And if you think about it, before you actually decide what to eat, your options are in a state of superposition because theoretically speaking, you can choose to eat anything. You can choose to eat Thai, Chinese, Japanese, you know, burgers, pizza, whatever food you want. And until you choose exactly what you want to eat, technically, all options are available, like there exists in superposition. And we can say, mathematically speaking, that it has a uniform distribution, which means like that the probability that you would choose any of the cuisines are the same. Of course, in practice, that is not correct. I mean, maybe you hate Thai food or Japanese food, then the probability for those will be zero. But nevertheless, I hope like you get the idea of what I'm trying to say, which is, you know, they exist in superposition. You can choose whichever. There is a probability for each of them. And until you for sure decide on one, all of them do exist. And that's superposition. That's the same as Schrodinger's cat. So that's superposition. The, th the third and final pillar of quantum computing, which in my opinion is the most confusing one, is entanglement, okay? Entanglement, uh, I think there's another picture there that I forgot. But entanglement is a phenomena that kind of creates a correlation between two qubits. And you can think of entanglement as kind of like may having the qubits be in a relationship, right? So now they're affected by each other rather than being independent, right? And entanglement can be created using different ways. For example, if you're using photons as qubits, we can create entangled uh, photons by making them come out of the same light source. There are more complex ways to create entanglement, but just say entanglement creates a relation or a bond between two qubits. So now they're dependent of each other rather than independent. So the, the states that they can be, which is like zero or one, now they independ to, uh, they're very dependent on each other. So if one of them is zero, the other one must be one and vice versa, like they cannot be both zero at the same time or one at the same time, okay? That is pretty much what entangled is. It just makes the qubits dependent uh, on each other. 
and uh, that kind of creates the whole probabilistic thing in, in, in superposition and quantum. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about qubits now, so hang on tight. Okay, so those are the three pillars. So if you have qubits, those qubits can be entangled and they can be in superposition and that will allow them to do, you know, what I like to call the quantum magic, right? Which is solve the complex problems. Okay. Okay, let's talk about qubits a little bit more, right? Because they are very essential. They're the core part of quantum, right? Qubits. So what are the types of qubits that exist today? So qubits, since quantum is still a new field, there's still a lot of research going on on what can be used as qubits, uh, how, what is the best kind of qubits to use, all of this stuff. It's still under research. But today we're going to talk about like the four top, uh, like let's say categories of qubits, okay? We're going to talk about spin qubits, trapped ions and atoms, photons and superconducting circuits or superconducting qubits as they call them. Let's start with the spin qubits, okay? So we're talking now about the different ways we can make a qubit, okay? So a spin qubit, which is when you take a particle, right? And the particle has an orientation, right? Like often like particles in nature are spinning. They're not very constant or they're not still, they're spinning either like clockwise, anti-clockwise, like they have a, a spinning orientation. Like do they point down or point up, right? Based on that spinning, they can generate a magnetic field. And the direction of the magnetic field is what we're referring to here as the spin, right? So based on how they're spinning, if they're spinning like anti-clockwise, for example, the magnetic field will be pointing up. If they're spinning the other way around, then it will be pointing down. And based on that, we can say, cool, now we have this uh, particle or electron as a qubit, right? And if it's spinning up, that means it's zero. And if it's spinning down, or pointing down, then it's one, okay? And with that, we created a qubit. Cool, that's like one type of qubit, okay? Spin qubits. Another type is trapped ions and atoms. And actually Google is one of the companies that work on trapped ions, qubits in making them. Uh, so in nature, again, uh, chemistry, high school chemistry, right? We have like a nucleus and then we have the energy level and then the electrons are often spinning. But if the atom is just existing, right? Like there in nature, nothing is happening. There is no excitation. There is no any chemical reaction, right? The electrons are often in the lower energy level. But as we studied in chemistry, or as if, if we didn't, if we excite them, as in we give this atom some energy, it can, the electron will uh, absorb this energy and then move on to a higher energy level, right? So we can use which energy level the electron is in to be the state of qubit, okay, or to be a qubit. So if the electron is in like a lower energy level, then it's zero. If it's in a higher energy level, then it's one, okay? That's another way of making uh, qubits, right? Like, so we're gonna use like where, where in, the, in the atom is the electron. And based on that, we can define if it's zero or one. Uh, and then we have photonic qubits and photons are light particles, right? And photonic qubits is actually one of the largest uh, areas of research when it comes to like constructing qubits. And there's different ways of using photons to create 
two bits. But here I'm going to talk about just one, which is like the magnetization. Okay. This one is very similar to the spin one, but here we're talking about the particle itself and we're talking about the polarization of the particle. It's either vertically polarized or like horizontally polarized. And we can use this polarization to make it a zero or one. Okay, so the photon is like the light particle, like laser particles or whatever light. There's so many research about this. Uh, use different uh, light sources to generate the particles or the photons. And then we can see their polarization and based on the orientation of the polarization, we can say it's a zero or it's a one. Okay, and then there is finally the superconducting qubits. I don't know if anyone here ever tried to Google like, you know, quantum computer. Have anyone tried in Google, just like Googling quantum computer and just, I wanna know what is like the images that shows up. I'm just curious if anyone remembers anything, right? If someone tried to Google quantum computer, right? The difference is, uh, uh, we'll answer that Vanessa in a second. Yes, yeah, like a large computer. Yes, large golden computers. It's something like a chandelier, right? That's probably like one of the first pictures that you're gonna see in Google when you, when you Google quantum computer. And actually that chandelier is a superconducting qubit based quantum computer. And it's called the quantilier, actually. <laughs> and it's basically that chandelier is just a fridge because in and to, to make superconducting qubits, basically we use specific materials, right? Specific materials that when we cool them down to a specific degree temperature, okay, they start being conducting, okay? And then we can see the based on the current that's passing, whether if it's clockwise or anti-clockwise, we can say it's zero or one. And superconducting qubits are the basis of the IBM uh, of the IBM quantum computers. All of them, the ones that are available now, the one they're still building, they're a very big fan of superconducting qubits. So uh, the the quantilier is actually using superconducting qubits, and although it like looks so big. The actual quantum computing part, like the qubits themselves are very small. There is the small part in the middle or in the bottom. The whole thing is just a fridge to keep it in a very low temperature. So actually the materials will be superconducting because if the temperature drops, then the material will not be superconducting. There will be no current in the circuit and then basically it won't work. So they need to stay in a specific temperature. Okay, uh, now let me let me answer Vanessa's question. Uh, how is the cutoff between zero and one determined uh, between the level? Is it standard? I'm guessing you are talking about the energy level one, right? Like the trapped ions. So often in the circuit, uh, sorry, in the in the atom, we kind of specify a range. So we say if the uh, electron is within this range around the nucleus, right? Then it is. Uh, like uh, energy level zero or like a low energy, right? Or if it's between another range, right? Then it's one. So technically this is, is not standard. It depends also on the materials using like what kind of ions, right? Or atoms are, are we using in this case? But once, once like the material is choosing, then for this material, there is a standardized like energy level, like the range of energy level that if it's in this range, it's zero. If it's in that range, it's one. I hope that answers the question. Okay. Um, 
So these are qubits. Does anyone have any questions about the construction of qubits? Again, as I said, there's qubits are still undergoing a lot of research, right? There's a lot of things that the researchers are still working on, making better qubits. Uh, as I as we just saw, like these qubits that we talked about are like tiny stuff, like they're like electrons or photons or like in, in a molecule, like all very small stuff. And because they are very small, they are very prone to errors. Right. Specifically, if I will consider something like, you know, like the spin qubits, right, like how they're spinning and because they're affected by electromagnetic waves, the something, some random electromagnetic wave can hit them in the middle of computation and kind of like messes up my the, the computation that they're performing. Right. It's one of the reasons why quantum computers now are not very accurate. It's because all these qubits are very sensitive, right? Like the trapped ion one, again, because if, if they get any random energy from the air, right? Because we have energy all around us, they can change their energy level and then we'll mess up the computation. Same for the superconducting qubits, right? They have to be in a specific temperature and they also affected by, again, electromagnetic waves and so many things. So. All of these are very fragile. These qubits are very fragile and that's what makes building a quantum computing hard. So what is the state of quantum hardware today, right? So we have this whole different ways of making qubits, right? And there are different companies and startups, right? Are working on building quantum computers like from Microsoft to Google to IBM to a handful of startups that are just wanting to build like a, a quantum computer that will actually do what we want it to do, right? Which is solve these complex problems that classical computers today can solve, right? But what exists now? So now what we call, but by we, I mean the researchers, not me personally, came up with this name, which is noisy intermediate scale quantum, which is NISC. We call it NISC, right? NISC quantum computers, right? Are quantum computers that are noisy, Again, noisy re refers to how sensitive they are, right? We just talked about this. Said so like those qubits are very sensitive and very error prone, right? They're not, they can, they're not good enough to kind of like avoid error and still do what we want them to do. So they're very noisy, very fragile. And the intermediate refers to how many qubits we, we need or we can put together and actually perform a circuit. And it's like 50 to 150 qubits. And just to give you an idea of like how far quantum needs to go to actually be useful is if we want to implement Shor's algorithm, right? Which is the algorithm that breaks the RSA, which is the encryption system of the internet today. We need at least like millions of qubits. And right now, people are still trying to work on making 50 to 150 qubits work. Let's say with a minimal error that it will uh, provide like useful computations. So this is still under the work. Still, we don't we don't have a quantum computer that is accurate and will actually give us like uh, good results. Unfortunately, but people are working on it and they're making very great progress uh, on the hardware side. Uh, since since quantum started becoming like a buzzword or like very something that people are interested in or like let's say big companies are interested in and governments are interested in funding, hardware has been taking most of the attention of the, of the research, right? Or of the funding. So 
the hardware aspect of quantum is moving way faster than the software aspect, which we'll talk about in a second, because everyone is like, hey, we just need to have a quantum computer that actually work, and then we can focus on the software. So, but they're doing a very great job, like a lot of breakthroughs recently, which is very nice and like exciting about the future of the field. Okay. So that's the hardware aspect of quantum. Okay, again, it's still under development. Uh, there are different ways, right, to, to, to uh, use quantum. There are some companies out there from the companies that's building quantum hardware like IBM, right, and Rigetti, that you can use their quantum hardware, like you can write code and then like over the cloud, send it to the quantum computers and then get some results back. It's, it's something that exists right now. Uh, so they do exist. If you want to play with them, they do exist and you can try something on them. They're very faulty, which means that the results that's coming out of them, even if you're using very few qubits, are often just noise, unfortunately, for now. But they're working on how to overcome that. And since, since this is women who code Python, right, and Python as software, I did not focus much on like how do they deal right now with the errors that happen from the hardware. But if it's something that you people are interested in, we can talk about that in, in another talk, which is like, you know, quantum error correction, which is like, how do they deal with the so many errors and noise happening on the hardware level, right? It's, it's a very big research field and we can talk about it if people are interested in that. But for now, let's move on to the software side. Okay, which is, I would say, doesn't have as much effort put in it, into it as the hardware side for quantum, unfortunately. But today, if, if someone wants to like implement a quantum algorithm today and run it on like one of the existing uh, hardware, what, what options do they have to write code, right? I want you to think about quantum now, like especially the software aspect of it now as kind of similar to the uh, early uh, stages of classical computers. But instead of having to write your code in zeros and one, which is assembly, you're actually writing it using like a programming language, but you're describing a very low level of the, of the circuit. Like you're describing gates and registers, which is basically what people were doing back in the early stages of the classical computers but you know, um, with zeros and ones, right? Now we don't, we don't even need to think about transistors and registers when we write software for a classical computer. And hopefully at some point in the future, quantum software will reach that level as well, which is a level where we don't have to worry about like the hardware aspect of quantum and we can just focus on the, on like just implementing algorithm. We don't have to think about registers, but for now that's what we have to do. So you can implement a quantum circuit or algorithm now, either using a, some programming languages built just for quantum, and there are a few of those exist right now, or the most commonly used approach, which is to use a package or a library that based on a classical programming language, or you can use something like lower level, and that is often used by like physicists and mathematicians, right? Which are, they're used like special kind of, of, of math or use like the quantum assembly language, right? To describe the circuit or pulses, which is like waves, right? Because quantum has a lot of waves, electromagnetic waves everywhere. So you can use that to, to describe a circuit, but it's like a very low level approach and require you to know a lot about the algorithm and about the quantum physics and mechanics uh, that empowers it, right? 
But if you don't, but you still want to play with quantum, you can still do that using like Python, right? Or using even a higher level quantum programming language like the ones we're going to talk about in a second. Okay, so as I said, this is the most common uh, way to do it, which is using a classical package, right? Or like quantum packages build on classical programming languages. Uh, today, Python is by far the number one programming language used in, used in, in quantum, right? And the most famous Python packages are Qiskit, Circ, and Byquil. So Qiskit, is built by IBM, Circ is built by Google, and Byquil is built by like they're a university. I think it's a university effort, right? Like so, researcher built Byquil. Yay, Python! Yeah, Python everywhere. It's, it's so great. Big fan of Python. There are also, if like you're not into Python because some people don't like Python for a lot of reasons, none of them make sense to me, but. If you want something C++ based or Java or even JavaScript based, there are different quantum packages on different classical programming languages, not just Python. I'm just saying that Python is the most commonly used programming language. But if you're into any other programming language and you're not comfortable with Python, you can also uh, get into quantum without actually having to use Python, if, if that's what was stopping you. So they all have a similar thing, right? Which is basically you're going to use these programming languages to describe a circuit, like describe like put some registers that have some qubits in them and then lay out a series of gates. Okay, that's basically how programming quantum computers work now. You just lay out a series of gates, right? You're just going to put gates and uh, gates are like, a, like a, the basics of of even classical computers, but now we don't think about them. But in quantum, we are at that stage for now. So you're gonna just lay out a series of, uh, of gates. But the difference is that now you can harness the power of uh, the classical programming languages. Like you can use for loops or if else conditions, right? You do not have to be like use like an assembly level uh, programming. To, to actually lay out these gates as people used to back in the early stages of you know of classical uh, of classical programming or do classical software like that or you can choose to use a programming languages that is just built for quantum right or like people designed it just so people can use it on quantum computers like Q sharp that is built by Microsoft there's Quiver and Quiver is is very similar to C++ I would say. And there is like the newest one that was, I guess, uh, Slick was published by uh, ZHC, ZHC Zurich, I think, the university. Uh, that is, and they did it in 2020, I think late 2020 or like early 2021 when they released Slick, which is just a high level representation, right? It's a high level programming languages language that has similar syntax, kind of like a mix between C++ and Python, and it is for quantum. And the, the good thing is, is if you choose to like, you know, learn one of the new programming languages to actually like implement quantum algorithm, these programming languages will get compiled, right, to a quantum assembly. And you can actually use these programming languages to like write uh, software, say for, for the IBM machines, for example, even though none of them are built by IBM. 
So you can still use them to implement on actual hardware for companies that allow you to use their hardware because not all companies allow you to use their hardware. Like for example, Google does not, does not let people like accept the people who work in Google to use their quantum uh, hardware. Okay. So they have like some similar syntax. Some of them are easier than the other. Slick, since it says the latest, they try to make it as simple as possible to describe a circuit, right? Here I just have like, like these uh, code snippets, right? They're describing the same thing, but like in different languages. It's the same thing as described here using the, the quantum packages of classical languages as well. So, you know just like for you to, to have an idea of like how many lines of code and complexity to write in like the different ways. Um, other than that, you can like choose to use a very low level approach to program, which is like using the quantum assembly or COSM as they call them, okay? Which is you can use like, as I said, like open balls, which is using the waves. You can use the QX simulator, which is, uh, a simulator from the name that you have to describe like using you know very very low level uh, descriptions to add like the gates to the registers or you can use something called zx calculus and zx calculus is like a, a field by itself and it's like just like a mathematical approach to describe quantum algorithms okay now all of these are options that you can use based on your comfort around quantum, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, the algorithm programming, right? To implement and try or experiment with quantum algorithms on like actual devices. But none of them, I won't say, oh, this is better than this. It depends on your comfort, uh, what are your comfort, you're comfortable with, sorry. So it depends on what you're trying to do, where you are if you're like quantum. If you're just getting into quantum, maybe you don't wanna like, like take a start with quantum assembly, right? You can just start by like uh, understanding the basic of quantum and using like Python or C++ or JavaScript, right? And implement some algorithm and then learn from that. And then once you feel you're more comfortable, you can then go a little bit to a lower level if you want to better understand what's happening in the circuit. Or you can just use the level of abstractions that is built like those classical programming languages or like the programming languages that is built particularly for quantum. Okay, so what do you need to know, right, to get into quantum today or what do you need to have? First of all, I feel like what and the most important thing is you need to be curious and I'm guessing like the people who are here today are curious about quantum, about the field and about what it has to offer. Right. So once you're curious, you have this curious mind, it will take you a long way, because if you're curious, you're going to put on a lot of more effort to learn new stuff about quantum or about anything in general. OK, uh, I would say basic knowledge of electronics, like, you know, what gates are, because gates are also the. Uh, them like the built one of the building blocks of classical computers like AND gates, NAND gates, transistors, right, they all exist there. Right, but we now just have so many levels of abstractions above of it in classical that we don't need to worry about. But if you know a little bit about that, especially if you're interested in the hardware side of quantum, then it's something that's it's it's knowledge that is important to know. Okay. Now you may ask, hey, if I'm interested in software, but I did not like, I do not know anything about one about electronics, can I still do it? I'd say the answer is yes, because then you will just have to know what are quantum gates and how they work, and then you can just go from there. 
right? It's just I'm saying that if you do have some previous knowledge, it will help. But if you don't, you can still do it. Okay. Uh, I think one of the main concerns that people have when they think quantum is how difficult the math will it be in the field, right? Now, I would argue that the math on quantum is not more difficult than, for say, the math in artificial intelligence or any of the data science branches. I would say even in data science, there are even more complex math than there is in quantum. Like quantum build on two core things or two core math branches, linear algebra and probability theory. Linear algebra is used to describe everything in quantum systems, starting from the qubits themselves to the circuit. And probability theory is because I said everything in quantum is probabilistic. So you need to know how probability theory works because everything in quantum is probabilistic. And also, if you know the basics of probability theory, you will go a long way. You do not even need to know the advanced part of probability theory to get into quantum. Okay. Now, the knowledge of the basic of quantum physics. Now, I'm going to be honest. When I joined quantum, I did not know much about quantum physics, and it was fine. Uh, right now, I've been doing quantum for a couple of years, and I still would say, like, the, the, the areas where I needed to know a lot of physics, quantum physics, to actually understand something, it's not that much. So although it's useful, I would say you won't need it as much. Okay. And of course, if you want to do something software, you need some programming knowledge, or you can just learn programming to, you know, do quantum, also an option if you, you never programmed before. But if you know Python, for example, already, you can now, after the session, just go get install Qiskit and start programming quantum algorithms and running them on the IBM devices. You can just do it right now. So it just will help. Like all of these stuff will help you. I don't know, like say speed up your journey in quantum, but it like lacking one of them will not stop you from pursuing quantum. So let's see like the roadmap for quantum, right? So as I said, there are different, different kind of companies, right? There are so many companies that are trying to, to build quantum. And this here like is from, I think an article uh, that I read about like, where is quantum going? Okay, till 2026 which is very close, like it's four years from now, right? And people are hoping that by like 2026, we'll have, uh, we'll have more, more qubits, right? Like, as you can see the numbers here. Now, there's something that you may notice here from this, right? Like you see stuff, let's say, hey, seven qubits, 28, and then there is 5,000 qubits, right? And then here there is 433. And then you may say like, hey, why is it like going backward? Like obviously D-Wave has like 5,000 qubits, right? Was like in 2020. And IBM still trying to get like, like say like 2022 or 2023, like 433 qubits, like what's happening there? Well, D-Wave does not build quantum computing computers in their, I would say like in the sense that you would imagine, right? Uh, that is, they're trying to build a, a specific purpose quantum computer, or like you can, you can think of it like embedded systems, right? Embedded systems are small classical computers that are built to do one specific task. That's what D-Wave does. So they're building small, uh, small, quantum computers that are for specific tasks. And if you just make them task specific, they become easier to build in a sense that you do not have to worry much about the, the construction or changing it. But like say IBM, Rigetti, Google, all these companies, they're trying to build 
e general purpose quantum computer, which means something like, you know, like the laptops we have today, but like in a, a little bit less broader sense, but something that you can use to implement any algorithm and not just something specific. And those are more harder to build because they need to be more versatile. Okay, that's why like there's this weird change in like the number of qubits. Okay, so this is like where quantum hardware is going, right? Or the future of quantum hardware. I would say so far we are kind of following this map from the perspective of like the number of qubits. So that's a good thing that we're not falling behind. In fact, in some companies are like doing it earlier than what's anticipated in this graph. What about software? As I said, like quantum software has not been having much attention or like the attention for quantum software has started very recently, which is when we started having a somewhat working quantum hardware, right? Or quantum computer. Then people was like, oh, maybe we need to develop some software now. So there are so many things that needs to be done in, in, in the perspective of like the software, we need to build compilers, we need to build libraries, we need to be able to navigate the noise or the error, right? In both like NISC is what we said now, the current era of quantum computer, which is like the noisy intermediate one, or FT, which we recall the full tolerant. So there are the future of quantum computer, which can have like are more like grown less prone, let's say, less prone to errors and more tolerant towards like those noise, okay? We need to know what data, we need to build simulators, debuggers, profilers, everything. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash Women Who Code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.